And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. I don't know if you can tell how much fun I'm having at doing these podcasts. And I know you aren't there when I'm working on articles with Rich Buck or strategies with Daryl Balls and Chris Pedersen and newsletters with uh, uh, Asia Griffin. Uh, these are all people I so enjoy working with, but at the end of the day, it's all about the fun of sharing something with you that I think might help you with your financial future. And yesterday, I had a ball because yesterday, for the first time, I had a chance to work with Rick Ferry. Now, I've known about Rick literally for decades because he was, as I was, an investment advisor, and we both had DFA funds in the portfolios for our clients, and we've both been through the DFA presentations that are so impactful to understanding long-term returns. So to have a chance now that he is retired from the money management business and is now on an hourly basis only, which I think is a, is a, is a great service he is providing, but he is also working uh, uh, with the, the Boglehead Group and uh, is producing their uh, podcasts. And I had the good fortune of spending about uh, an hour and a quarter uh, with Rick. Now, he's going to pare that back. He's going to take out the ums and ahs, and it'll probably be closer to 50 minutes, but it was a fun experience. It was fun sharing with Rick because we've been through the same things uh, in terms of of exposure to similar markets, exposure to similar clients. Um, and 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 by the way, we're both uh, I think, equally committed to trying to help others do better. So I waited to do this podcast until I had done the podcast with Rick because when it he releases it in a couple of weeks, we will make it uh, the podcast of that week. So I didn't want to duplicate very much, so I waited to, to find out what he asked so that I could I could chime in here today and bring you some more of uh, partly the feedback that we got uh, from the Boglehead group after they heard my podcast. It became a, a, a hot topic of discussion, which is great fun for me. Uh, and, uh, and, and so I took some of those questions that came up on the Boglehead site, uh, as well as some things that uh, have come uh, from you folks. Uh, and so that's today. I've got about 10 topics, 10 questions uh, that I want to address that have to do with uh, this process of, of selecting and trusting uh, asset classes, uh, uh, answer some of the questions about the past and how relevant it has, that it might be to the future, uh, I think all of these were great questions, and I thank all of you for for passing them along. I'm sorry I can't get to more. Now, let me get to work and, and work on the ones I've got. So uh, the, the first one, really the bottom line question is, what does Paul think of the factor funds at Vanguard? And uh, and what, what the... Uh, the questioner actually said was, um, what does Paul think of the factor funds at Vanguard? I don't think I've heard him talk much about them. He usually says the stocks that Vanguard chooses for their value and small cap funds are not deep enough value and are not as small as similar asset classes used by DFA. Now, that comment about DFA, dimensional funds, is important because I really have drunk the Kool-Aid that DFA has shared with me and so many people who 
who uh, trust uh, the academic work that Drs. Fama and French have done. And so the goal for Chris Pedersen and myself and Daryl Balls, we, we, we had all hoped with all these new uh, ETFs that are coming out, uh, that we would be able to find ETFs that could replicate the DFA funds that I have in my portfolio. Um, for people who believe in the 10 asset class strategy that I recommend, uh, that's, that's what I do with my own money. And so it probably shouldn't shock you for me to want to figure out how to let you have the same thing. So let me respond to the question, and let me hopefully share some lessons here about uh, what is or what can be special about different asset classes. And so using this question uh, as a uh, springboard to the topic, I I looked at the Vanguard U.S. Multi-Factor ETF. V as in Victor, F as in Frank, M as in Mary, F as in Frank. That's the ticker symbol. And I I picked on this one because I've recently uh, done a lot of work showing you the uh, in the nine decade uh, study that we did. We showed the impact of large and small blend versus large and small value. So. In that study, you have the impact of the value factor, you have the impact of the size factor, and certainly the market, the, that, the, the stock uh, equity asset class is a major factor to your long-term returns. And not only do I want to know about the, the factor loading, um, and by the way, there are a whole bunch of other um, potential factors that you can look at. Talk about those probably a little later, but just let me keep it simple as I look at what Vanguard does and 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 what you can do if you use the best in class uh, ETFs that we have recommended. You can go to go to paulmerriman.com and you can see those. Uh, uh, ETFs that Chris Pedersen picked out that he considers to be best in class, and I'm not going to argue with him. So what do I know about uh, about the Vanguard multi-factor ETF that might be valuable? Well, the first thing I, I look at is just simply the expense ratio, because uh, I'm always trying to keep expenses low. And so the expense ratio for that ETF is uh, 18 one-hundredths of 1%. So that is a, an amazingly low figure. Uh, I, I, th- I think back to the, the days when uh, 1% was such a common expense for a mutual fund, and now we're down to uh, under 20 basis points. And as we know, in some cases over at Fidelity, even free, even free. So that was step one. What about the expense? Then the next thing I want to do is to uh, get an idea of the size and value orientation. Now, in the case of Vanguard, because it's a single fund, and yes, boy, wouldn't it be nice if I could recommend a single ETF that picked up what we want you to have in the uh, ultimate buy-and-hold strategy and the uh, best-in-class ETFs. It would be wonderful to have a best-in-class multi-factor fund. But when I do look at what you get from uh, these two... uh, two portfolios because ours would happen to be a five ETF portfolio versus the one. But in either case, you are going to end up with a portfolio of asset classes. And as I look at the uh, asset classes at, uh, uh, at Vanguard, 
uh, they have about uh, 40% in value versus about 60% with the best-in-class group. Uh, Vanguard has about 30% in small cap versus uh, 40% approximately uh, in the portfolio that would be the best-in-class for those five uh, U.S. Uh, equity asset classes. By the way, I should probably make sure that you know what those five are. One would be large-cap U.S. blend. These are all U.S., by the way. Uh, and in that case, we recommend the total market index. Uh, then in the large-cap value, we use the Invesco Pure Value ETF. And then in uh, the uh, small cap blend, we use the iShares small cap. For small cap value, we use the Spider uh, small cap value ETF. And, uh, and I also included, since we're talking all U.S., uh, the Vanguard REIT uh, to, to, for exposure to REITs in the U.S. And that, of course, would be in a, a tax-deferred account. So, so if you put together these four different ETFs, you end up, I think, with better representation of the asset classes that we're trying to build for you. And the beauty, the beauty of of what Chris has done is that if we're looking for this. Uh, asset allocation of U.S. equity that includes large-cap blend and large-cap value and small-cap blend and small-cap value and REITs, there are likely some advantage to trying to find the best in each class because there are hundreds, well, thousands of these ETFs to choose from. And I think that we should be able to squeeze out a better return than depending on just that one fund managed by one company. And, um, uh, and, and, I, and I honestly don't know how, how consistent they're going to be with whatever balance of small cap and value they're going to have. What I do know about what we're doing is we're giving you an approach that keeps it consistent. So I do see that keeping it consistent and looking for the best has some big advantages. Let me just give you a couple. For one thing, uh, with the Vanguard Multi-Factor ETF, you get 562 companies. In the strategy that... Um, that we're using with these five different U.S. asset classes in the total market index, almost 3,600 different companies. In the peer value, 108. In the small cap blend, 600. In the small cap value, 454. In the Vanguard REIT, 185. It's almost 5,000 different companies versus 562. I truly believe that that gives you an advantage. Yes, it takes a little time. Now, I, I might add that it doesn't have to take you a little time at all, because if you set this, uh, this portfolio up at, at M1, for example, uh, then uh, it would allow you to automatically rebalance uh, or you could uh, order it to rebalance, depending on your choice, and it's a piece of cake to rebalance. And the and the and the thing that is so cool about this is that in that in that process of rebalancing, you get right back to what it was you wanted in the beginning, with all of the uh, of the diverse diversification you wanted in the beginning. So. That's step number one, for sure, and that is that you do get more companies in your portfolio if you use the five different ETFs. Oh, and I forgot to mention, the average expense ratio of those five ETFs is 0.14, so it's four one-hundredths of 1% cheaper uh, than you would have at Vanguard. Now, to be fair, 
along the way, they are going to be some some costs when you rebalance. Even if you're at M1 and you don't have to pay any commission to rebalance, there will still be a spread between the bid and ask. Now, of course, the key there is to, 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 to outfox them, if you will, is not to rebalance, but uh, just let the different asset classes run. Maybe every two or three years you might rebalance. That would certainly minimize any costs of that rebalancing. Then there is the, the size of company. Uh, the size of, of company uh, is uh, at, at, at uh, Vanguard uh, is about almost $12 billion. So it is basically what you would call on average a mid-cap. But, but that will be a combination of big and small companies and value and growth companies. So there are some small companies there too. But remember that the best-in-class strategy had more uh, exposure to small. Uh, in, in the case of, uh, of the uh, five ETFs, the total market, the average size company, is over $72 billion. The large value, uh, $22 billion. Uh, the small-cap blend... Average size companies, $1.7 billion. Small value, $1.5 billion. And the, uh, the REIT's about $16 billion. So you're going to get, on, uh, on average, uh, a smaller company uh, overall uh, with, the, uh, uh, with the five different ETFs. But this is not quite as easy to measure as some of the other things. The other thing we look at is the price to book. Uh, is it uh, uh, more growth-oriented or, or more value-oriented? And the five ETFs do, in fact, have a more value-oriented, which shouldn't surprise us because Morningstar shows that that the uh, the best in class group have about sixty percent in value uh, versus about forty uh, in the in the Vanguard fund. Um, then we look at the total assets because the, the bottom line is is that uh, we want this to be a very liquid, very liquid portfolio. And uh, the total assets under management right now at Vanguard is about 103 million. Well, in the total market index, it's 144 billion. The pure value is uh, over 11 billion. The small cap blend is 49 billion. The small cap value is two and a half billion. The REITs about 38 billion. So there's a, a a ton of liquidity uh, in these these funds, and by the way, a lot of track record to look at. There really isn't much of a track record to look at with the Vanguard uh, ETF. And I know, you know, one year's performance does not mean anything. But I can tell you, the five ETFs. And the the Vanguard multi-factor funds were, were were both trying to do something where we mix it up with size of company and value orientation and growth orientation, etc. And in the 2019 market, the average of the five ETFs, not quickly give you those returns last year, the total market 30.7. I might just mention there, for those of you who think that the total market index has an advantage over the S&P 500, I know you've heard me say that uh, long-term, they're over 90-plus years of performance, they're virtually the same. But last year, the S&P 500 was 31.3, the total market index 30.7. The pure value, 248 the small cap blend, 22.8, small cap value, 24.3, and the REIT, 28.9, for an average of 
And the Vanguard ETF was up 22.3 last year. We really can't judge how well they did last year. We can judge when we're picking these ETFs how well they have done in their particular asset class. Doesn't mean they're going to be able to reproduce it and be the best or amongst the best every year, but at least we can very specifically measure how they have done. We can't do that when we buy a multi-factor fund that represents all of the U.S. We just can't make the judgments that we can with the individual ETFs. And this is not a small item because at the end of the day, We all can make a list of what we can control and what we can't control. And when we are looking at the things we can control, we can very specifically control the size of the companies, the orientation to value or growth. We can select the expense ratio. We can select the amount of diversification. We have control of those. Now, is it possible the, the ETF or mutual fund could, could change their, their spots and all of a sudden become large instead of small? Well, yeah, maybe they could, but it's very unlikely. At the other end of the spectrum, there are things we cannot control. We cannot control the returns, and we cannot control when those returns will or won't happen. I mean, that's that's the bottom line. So I really like the idea of being able to go in and control the amount we have in large cap blend and these other asset classes. And I'd like the ability to control who we ask to manage it for us. Question number two. What impact do the momentum, quality, and volatility factors have on your recommendations? Now, this is going to be a very quick answer to a fairly complex question. Uh, Let me give you the general answer, and that is that they all have some impact in the process of selecting the ETFs that are, that are recommended. Um, but the, the real big items, that there's tons of historical information and appear to be the greater driving forces are first, the market you're in, stocks or bonds. Uh, second uh, would, would be the, uh, the size of, of the companies. And the third item would be the value orientation, whether they are popular uh, or out of favor, popular growth, uh, out of favor value companies. Having said that, if you really want to understand what's behind those portfolios that we are recommending, I want you to read through uh, Chris's article. You can find it Uh, In fact, we'll put a link in the notes to the uh, podcast, but you can find it uh, under ETFs link, the ETF link at uh, paulmerriman.com and uh, look under the best in class ETFs and you're going to find an article there entitled best in class ETFs for the ultimate buy and hold. Uh, And this was, was in 2019, 2019. Uh, and what you're going to then understand is much more, uh, in much more detail, the process that uh, um, that Chris goes through in selecting these uh, ETFs. And number three, uh, where can I see long-term, real-time results of the small-cap value asset class? Well, this is one of the, the really the difficult. Uh, aspects of looking to the past. I've said this many times. From my viewpoint, I don't care whether it's real time over the last year or hypothetical over the last 90 years. 
if the hypothetical study looked at all of the stocks in the, for example, in the S&P 500. But wait a minute, there was no committee formed uh, 90 years ago to pick those stocks. Uh, that, that didn't happen until 1957. And yet most of us in the industry uh, take the work of uh, the folks from mostly the University of Chicago at the time, they take the work of digging out the returns of these different asset classes uh, as being as close to reality as we're likely to get. And, and so somebody had to make the decision as to what 500 companies in 1928 they used to replicate the market. And that's for the S&P 500. Same thing with small cap value. Anybody who is studying seriously an asset class like small cap value is going to have to come up with a definition for what's small cap. And how do you define value? And at what point do you eliminate a company that is no longer small cap uh, and take it off the table and then bring in something else? Uh, so there, there is a lot that goes into determining these returns. And from my viewpoint, uh, we, can, we can look at the challenges of those returns during those periods because there weren't very many trades there wasn't the kind of activity in the stock market and liquidity that we have today. But in a sense, it's the best they could do, whether we're talking small cap value or S&P 500. So what's real? Well, in a sense, what we showed you uh, in that uh, uh, study of the nine decades is as close to real as we're likely to get. Because if we even look at the last 10 years, you can look at different small cap value indexes and they're going to have very different returns. Russell has a small cap index. DFA has a small cap index. Uh, Vanguard has a small cap index. And the returns have not all been the same. And that's not because one of them's cheating or overstating or something. They just have different definitions of how you get in the club. So when I look back at the returns of all of these asset classes, uh, I take it all with a grain of salt, but I also look for any consistency that I can. I don't believe the academics decided to make small cap value something special. And so they started looking for small cap stocks that did better. And by the way, not small cap blend, but small cap value. And uh, they accepted those, but threw out the other ones that didn't do so well. I don't think they did that. The mutual fund industry does that. When they close down funds that have poor performance, they just close them down, get them off the books. And it makes everybody look better. But I don't think the academics do that. I think they do their best to replicate what they're trying to, uh, to, to prove or disprove. And I think it's fair to conclude that I cannot trust any asset class to live up to uh, uh, past returns. Even the S&P 500, I don't know. I do know there have been small cap value funds around for the last 20 years. I do know that the S&P 500 that many people believe, really believe will give somewhere between a 9 and an 11% compound rate of return for the long term over the last 20 years have only made a little over 6%. What do you make out of that? Do we kick the bum out or do we keep the bum in in the hopes that the next 20 years will be better? But we do know this, that value did better than the S&P 500 over the last 20 years by a spread of about 4%. No, maybe it didn't make 12% or 15% in 
over that 20-year period. But if it made, if it made 10%, which funds did over that 20-year period, if it made a 10% compound rate of return and the S&P made 6, that's more than I can hope for. In terms of what I believe, I mean, this is just feelings from looking at the past. I believe it's legitimate for the S&P 500 to make 10%, or it's possible if you want to think of it that way. And I also think it's possible that the small cap value will do 2% better. Absolutely, reasonably possible. Maybe even probable from what we know about the past. But, boy, you would not find over the last 20 years a case for the S&P 500. Not if we look at the track record. And yet, most Americans still trust it. John Bogle, and this is number four, John Bogle said that there was no way for a small investor to invest in small cap value in the 30s. Where can a small investor capture the results of the past? Well, <laughs> John, is he's absolutely right. Uh, as, as I have said for 30 years plus, there is no risk in the past. We always know what we should have done. And in fact, there was no way you could have invested in the S&P 500 in the 30s. It didn't become available until 1976. And then from, from 75 to 1999, the S&P 500 index compounds at over 17%. How, real, how realistic is that for the future? And yet it is that 25-year return of the S&P 500 at amazingly great levels in terms of compounding. It's, it, it's, it is that track record that put it on the map. And how realistic is that? Well, I guess I guess it's... It's possible because maybe the great return of the S&P 500 will come with some periods of outperformance and some periods, like the last 20 years, of underperformance, massive underperformance versus the massive outperformance. Is that the way that investing really works? As to where to capture it, well, you know, this is, a, this is not an anti-Vanguard comment here, but it is the reality that Fidelity now has a, a small cap value index uh, that only has an expense ratio of five one-hundredths of 1%. Now, one of the things we worry about uh, small cap uh, is that uh, it normally costs a lot to have somebody manage it. Now we're managing the small cap index at the same price as we do the S&P 500. And, and, and remember this. I mean, this is one of the really great things about mutual funds. In fact, mutual funds more than ETFs in this regard. If you buy a small cap value index fund at Fidelity, and at the end of the day, you decide to sell it. Well, if you decided to sell it in the open market, you'd pay a commission, and you might not get a great price. But when you sell it through a mutual fund, you, in essence, do it without a commission and you get the equivalent of the mean between the bid and ask. It is a costless transaction in an asset class that, yes, can be expensive to trade. And number five, if I add small cap value to my portfolio, how much will my risk go up? Well, it depends on how you quantify the risk. One of the tables that I show 
uh, during a workshop. Uh, and by the way, I've got workshops coming up in Boston, New York City, Westport, San Diego, uh, oh, Palo Alto. Uh, and uh, if you happen to live in Seattle, want to take a ferry across, uh, I think I have a total of about uh, six or seven uh, public workshops during the month of April here on Bainbridge. Uh, you're all invited. But anyway, here's the table. The table looks at the impact of uh, both risk and return with large cap blend, large cap value, small cap blend, small cap value, and a combination of all four and the combination of the two all value portfolios. And when you can look at them in this way, you can measure, you can compare the volatility of each, and that is one way uh, to think in terms of additional risk in your portfolio. But for example, if, if we look at the standard deviation, a measure of volatility, higher numbers mean more volatility, the S&P 500 Average 15-year standard deviation, 18.2%. Small cap value, 29%. Which means the swings up and down are going to be greater with small cap value. But even having said that, it may be that it's the upside that is is in essence skewing this length this that this level of volatility and and it is more volatile but i could look at it another way i could go back and i could look at every year the s&p 500 lost money and i could see how did small cap value do in every year that that the s&p lost money and it turns out uh, for the last 90 some years that the average loss for both of them was about 13%. And the reason that it worked out like that is because some of the years that the S&P 500 lost money, small cap value made money. I mean, it's there could be huge differences in return. Remember, we talked about this on other podcasts, about the average difference in return between the S&P 500 and small cap value, and it's about 15%. There's a big disparity in annual return on the upside and on the downside. But But the other view of risk is to say, okay, over a particular period of time, which is more risky? Short term, if we look at one year at a time, the worst 12-month experience over that 1928 to 2018 period, the worst experience was a loss of 43% for the S&P 500 versus uh, 55, almost 56% for small cap value. Okay, one year at a time, Small cap value lost more money in the worst case. Now let's look at 15 years. The worst 15 years over all that period of time, there were 76 periods. The worst 15 years with the S&P 500 was a gain of uh, 0.6% a year. For small cap value, it was a loss. Now, this is over 15 years, so this is not a minor item. It was a loss of 1.9. So when we go out 15 years, which is probably longer than I've got left to live, uh, that, that small cap value holding I have in my portfolio is certainly probably more risky than the S&P 500. But what if I go out 40 years? Because there are a lot of people listening to this that their, that their period of investing could be 50 years, 60 years. If you live to be 90 or 95, it certainly is possible it could be 70 years worth of investing. But if I look out at the, at the 51 40-year periods, and I think in terms of risk, what was the worst return for 40 years from the S&P 500. 
It was an 8.9% compound rate of return. It was a gr- it was a great return, but it was the worst. On the other hand, the worst return for small cap value was 11.6. So which one is more risky? In some ways, this is not so different than the argument about, you know, which is more risky, stocks or bonds? Well, most of you would probably say, because bonds don't make as much, don't protect you against inflation as much, uh, don't keep you from you know, working forever because the returns are so small with fixed income, you might say, well, you know something, I think bonds are the most risky. Well, in some periods that's true, in other periods that's not. Uh, Number six, is there a similar portfolio to the four-fund combo that includes international developed markets and emerging markets. Now, it's interesting to me that uh, they didn't ask about international small-cap value uh, or large-cap value they, uh, and, or small-cap blend, but they were responding to what they saw in that article about the, the four f- different asset classes looking back over 90 years. And, of course, we don't have international or emerging market uh, data to go back that far. If we did, we could, and we would. But there is an answer. Is there a similar portfolio? Yes, it's the portfolio that I have in my own investment pool. I have what I call the ultimate buy-and-hold strategy, 10%. U.S. large cap blend, another 10 in large cap value, another 10 in small cap blend, small cap value, REITs, international large cap blend, international large cap value, international small cap blend and small cap value, and finally emerging markets. Yes, we have that portfolio. And we have given you the best-in-class ETFs that we recommend to go along with that portfolio. Just go to paulmerriman.com and see the link to ETFs. And then you'll see a drop-down that'll take you to best-in-class portfolios. And number seven, what are the historical trading costs and inefficiencies when trading small-cap value stocks? Are they taken into consideration in your studies? No. Neither is the S&P 500 uh, index impacted by uh, expenses and the inefficiencies of uh, trading. And now there's no question. There's no question that the inefficiencies in trading uh, small cap value stocks are far, far greater than the inefficiencies of trading uh, the S&P 500 stocks. What we do hope is that people who are investing in these small cap value stocks are doing it for the long, long, long term. So, and, and that they're not doing a lot of trading in fact, I'll be writing uh, in, in the coming months about the implications of not rebalancing in these kind of portfolios. Or, if you're going to rebalance, only use new money to rebalance so that you, ju- you keep that trading cost to a minimum. Now, let's talk about the long-term returns and the inefficiencies one would have had to have lived with. Well, you, you, it probably would have cost you at least 1% a year in terms of liquidity costs if you traded a, a couple of times. In fact, uh, John Bogle in his book, The Little Book of Common Sense Investing, says that when you turn a, a, a portfolio over 100% a year, uh, you, you buy it and then you sell it. 
that it's costing you about 1% between commissions and spreads between the bid and ask, etc. Now, I must say that today is so very, very different. Uh, with all of the, lo- the liquidity we have today, by the way, I would warn anybody, there may be a day when you will not have that liquidity and we'll be back to old-fashioned kinds of differences between the bid and ask. I lived through that once. We went from being very liquid in the 60s to when you ask for a price on an individual company, the price was um, uh, workout. It was a workout. They would give you a, a, a price to sell it for, but if you if they want you to if if you're trying to sell to them they'd have to go out and find a buyer for you called WO workout many of the over the counter companies that today are very actively traded those kinds of companies were sometimes very hard to find a buyer when you wanted to sell so there's a lot of history that we're assuming we're not going to live through again when we talk about being able to replicate these returns. But it is important. The people who are buying into this kind of a strategy are are doing this with the idea of buying and holding uh, for the long term. Number eight, comment from one of the folks who went to the Boglehead site uh, where they were discussing our uh, nine-decade nine, uh, study. Uh, this person says, I want some real-life returns that came close to what he claims the historical return has been. Well, first of all, let me tell you what the historical return has been. Without taxes, without expenses, without a management fee to manage it, uh, so, so this is is not real, but the study is is consistent throughout. So, to the extent that you're comparing returns, uh, that is probably realistically uh, legitimate. Now, let me tell you what the average forty year return was for small cap value: fifty one forty year returns. The best 40 years was a return of 19. The worst was a return of 11.6. Now, having said that, when I talk to people about what kind of a return I expect from small cap value, and I'm going to call it the average return, I'm going to take 4% off what the historical returns are that the academics have dug out. So 16.2 down to 12. So when, when this particular person who wants to, to see the returns that are anywhere close to the returns that I've commented on, yes, the 16.2 is what the studies show, but I don't count on that. In fact, uh, I've uh, assumed a return of 12% for small cap value. I'd be pleased with that, just as I'd be very pleased with 10% from the S&P 500. So I, I hope that helps. Um, I'm going to, in, in a minute, I'm going to talk about uh, a video uh, that I want you to watch and you'll see some of the challenges that we do have in struggling with the returns that mean something to us. Uh, number nine, um, in, the, in the Boglehead po- uh, podcast, uh, Rick asked me about the biggest mistake I'd made. And I answered him, and... Um, and and I want to talk for a second about what one of the things that that I think is a, such a common common mistake, and, and it's really in some ways, it's it's what that whole nine decade study is about, is trying to help people see more realistically 
uh, how returns really work, and 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 that from one decade to the next, uh, it it with these four asset classes, uh, it can it can really play havoc with you when maybe where you've put most of your money has not lived up to your expectations. And to make it more radical and to see it in a more vivid way, uh, there is a link to a, uh, a, a five-minute video that is taken out of the uh, Fareed Zakaria Sunday morning show uh, and in this particular case, uh, he, he discusses uh, this, this particular uh, segment was about America's decade of dominance uh, in the securities or equities market. And by the chance that you're not going to go look at this, I'm going to walk you through it because it is just, it's, 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 too, it's too good to be true. You see, in my study, what makes it more kind of realistic and kind of believable uh, that it could happen to you is I limited it to four major asset classes where we have documented evidence, even though it's hypothetical, uh, going back uh, over 90 years. But in this study that... uh, uh, Fareed uh, discusses with a fellow whose name I think is Rushir Sharma. He's the head of emerging markets and chief global strategist at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. But it's a delicious graph because it shows uh, it shows the return of the number one. A major group that that uh, starred in the fifties and the sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties, two thousands, and the last decade. And for example, Europeans were the hot stuff in the fifties, and then in the sixties, the Nifty Fifty became the hot way. That that's the smart thing to do, and people did it in the seventies. In fact, we were told all you need to do for the future is to put your money into these great fifty companies, and a number of them were technology. Not all, but a number of them were technology based. And then in the seventies, it was emerging markets and commodities. Then in the eighties, it was the Japanese stock market. Then in the nineties, it was American technology companies. Then in two thousands, it was emerging markets again. So twice, twice in in in, in those periods, those seven periods, emerging markets were at the head of the of the race. And then in the, this last decade again, it was America's mega corpse, the the technology companies, mostly all technology companies. So we had basically two, maybe two and a half, having to do with technology in the U.S. A couple of the decades having to do with emerging markets. And then a couple decades having to do with the European and then the Japanese markets. But here's what happens. After 10 years of something being really good, we finally get up the confidence to invest in it. And the question was, how did, how did those great superstars do the next decade? Because the year that they were the hot place to be, they averaged 587% return in that decade. Okay? 587%. But if you invested in that hot index uh, or area, you know, the European, the Japanese market, the emerging markets, whatever, if you had the following decade invested in that hot segment, you would have had a negative 11% return. A negative 11, not a compound rate of return total, but a negative. If there isn't a lesson there about chasing returns, I don't care if, if it's about small cap value or large cap blend, 
people have chased large cap blend, the S&P 500. When do they chase it? When it's been doing well for a bunch of years. There were people in the late 90s who basically said, what do I need? Anything else but the S&P 500. John Bogle was sitting there just licking his chops. You all come. It's dinner time. And then it turned out that after that great run, it turned to about the same, a negative return, a total return that was about a negative 11%. So I hope you'll go look at those graphs because it's one thing to hear me talk about them. But but it's totally different when you see those graphs. I don't think you'll ever forget it. I won't. And oh, by the way, at the beginning of the decade, this last decade, what was believed to be the asset classes that were going to do the best uh, for those 10 years, the past 10 years, Those were materials and energy. There was a belief that China was just going to be grabbing all the commodities and the materials, and there's going to be a shortage and prices are going to skyrocket. How wrong could they be as energy and materials ended up at the bottom? At the bottom, energy, a 20% return for the, for the decade. Materials, a 40% return, approximately. There was one comment. I'll call this topic number 10. Uh, there was one comment where a gentleman says, Paul tells investors to be patient, and they will receive the premium for investing in small-cap value. Will Paul likely go to his grave with small-cap value not living up to his expectations? You know, this is really a good point. Here I am at 76. If if, if I could uh, get a decent return for another 15 years, and I'll be lucky to live another 15 years, it's a medical miracle I'm alive today. I mean, it, it, it is amazing what technology has been able to do for those of us who don't take care of ourselves. But, uh, yes, it is actually possible. And the reason I think it's possible is not because I don't think small cap value isn't a great asset class, and it is a major part of my portfolio. It's not all, but it's certainly part um, when I look at those those tables, in fact, we we, we created some new tables that uh, that, that show the impact of uh, over those nine decades, but looked at shorter periods of time. If you if you uh, don't have uh, those those additional tables, I encourage you to go to. Uh, in fact, we'll have a link to those tables uh, in the handout material. But here's what I know about the 15-year results uh, in terms of the returns on small-cap value and the likelihood that the next 15 years, let's call it the rest of my life, are going to be a great return in small-cap value. Well, here's the reality. Uh, There are six 15-year periods that we're looking at in those tables. There are three of those six, that the returns are less than 8%. There's a 6.2 and a 6.8 and a 7.9. So three of the 15-year periods, it was a bummer. Now, that doesn't mean that other asset classes might not have done worse, but certainly the idea of getting 12% a year in three of those 15-year periods, it just wasn't good at all. Now, on the other hand, the other three 15-year periods, 17.3, 19, and 26.4. So it could happen. It could happen. Remember, 
John Bogle, real time, got 17% a year for 25 years. And how long should we hate wait for that to happen again? And that was John Bogle's good fortune. And by the way, good fortune for a lot of people my age because that was the period that we were investing and saving for the future. Well, I hope you will uh, join me uh, in the couple weeks from now and in my interview with uh, Rick Ferry. I'm going to remind you to be keep working on that list of people that you want to have a fr- get a free copy of my ebook when it comes out. Remember, we're going to be talking about the $12 million decisions and we're going to be talking about two funds for life. I hope this book finds its way into the hands of young people in their 20s and their 30s, and we're going to hopefully change some lives, at least some, some financial lives. Thanks for listening. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.